Hello, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. Uh, Jeremy can't be with us today, but the reason I'm here with Christian alone is because we are recapping our recent trip to the Port Elliott Lit Fest, where we had the great pleasure of interviewing and performing live, but interviewing uh, Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason, two phenomenal authors, award winners, and um, tell us a little about uh, how it went, Christian. Yeah, thanks, Wyndham. Um, you know, this was a, a literary and arts festival. I think, you know, there was some great music there as well. Um, and uh, you'll see some of our other interviews popping up this week and next. But, um, you know, the, the real sort of uh, centerpiece of our of our time there was spent um, doing a performance with, uh, with Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason, in which, I mean, really just a, a sort of... Um, Panel discussion, I suppose, um, with uh, with Jeff Dyer, who's the author of, of eleven books, including Jeff and Venice, Death and Varanasi, um, Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It, and uh, of course, my my favorite book on jazz, but beautiful, um, and and you know, in particular, we were really interested to hear uh, to hear about but beautiful, which is a which is a really excellent read and a sort of homage to um, to jazz music. Richard Mason, our other um, our other sort of featured author in this interview, uh, is author of Us, Drowning People, The Lighted Room, History of a Pleasure Seeker, and Who Killed Pete Barrel. And, um, you know, one of the most interesting parts of this, I thought, was, was that Jeff was really coming at this from, as, as somebody who wrote... Um, a book really uh, sort of dedicated to, to jazz and, and its improvisational musicians. Um, and, you know, Richard, on the other hand, is, is actually sort of incorporated music um, into the structure of his, of his fiction uh, and, and often uses it actually in particular in History of a Pleasure Seeker um, to, to sort of push, push character development forward. Um, so hearing from both of them about the way that they were able to sort of incorporate music or, or how it inspired their writing was, was really fascinating. Yeah, well, I, you know, they came at it from two different, uh, very distinctive um, places, too. Uh, Richard being a, a, a trained classical pianist um, and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, very uh, an adherent to that particular form of music's um, discipline and rigor. And, you know, Jeff, who in But Beautiful, uh, you know, sort of presents... Um, you know, jazz musicians uh, in, their, in the lives that they led uh, by uh, sort of completing some of the, uh, or fleshing out some of the, um, the folklore? really unre- unreported myths and folklore around some of uh, the giants of, of, that, of that particular um, discipline of music. It, it's actually, it's fascinating, and it, it reminds me, his style in particular, of, of another author who we, uh, who we heard from and, and who we actually interviewed uh, interviewed along with Andrew Weatherall, um, but that's that's Dave Keenan, and you know Dave Keenan had just written a, an oral history um, about a fictional band. Uh, Jeff Dyer takes a sort of you know not 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 the same approach, but um, but he basically uh, using as his as his source material the music itself, and then photos of the. Uh, different musicians, he uses that as a sort of jumping off point. And then he proceeds to tell stories that are in some way and in some part true, but in other areas he's improvising, much as the artists that he's actually describing uh, do on a regular basis. And, you know, I think at at the conclusion of But Beautiful, he has a a really wonderful essay sort of about music criticism um, and his approach, but but really the idea is that, you know, the best way to, to describe art often is art in and of itself. And I think that that's really um, what, what he achieved here. So, you know, I, I think one of the fascinating questions that we got into um, was sort of 
for the untrained um, fan of music, uh, you know, is it is it exclusionary to um, to to be reading and and to come across um, you know the sort of very highly technical jargon um, of uh, of something like classical music, um, or do you want something that's ultimately more accessible? Um, and and these two authors, I think, did a, a wonderful job of of sort of making cases for for both, um, and uh, and then discussing the the merits and uh, pitfalls. Well, yeah. So you know, without belaboring this. Uh, any further, I think we uh, should just rely on, on what we captured at the fest, uh, sitting down with uh, Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason. Um, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. We certainly enjoyed sitting in on it and, uh, um, quote, directing it. But uh, I, I think you'll see for yourself these guys are, uh, are uh, very, very um, wonderful conversationalists, and we were the beneficiaries of sitting in with them. Brother, brother, brother podcast. My name is Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother Christian Lewis. Uh, we are down one brother today. Jeremy Sartori is stuck in the United States, making sure nothing goes wrong with the Trump administration. Um, but which uh, is a significant challenge this yeah, weekend, right? Hundred percent. But just to give you a little bit of the backstory, brother, brother, brother is a music uh, commentary podcast that I started with my two brothers. I am in my late forties. Jeremy is late thirties. Christian is late twenties all have different parental permutations, and we didn't all meet in one place until 2006. So we found we all had a shared passion for music and decided to start a podcast talking about it. Christian. Yeah, thank you, Wyndham. Um, and thanks, Jeff and Richard, for joining. Um, and everybody who's put the festival together. It's, uh, it's been a great weekend in spite of the, in spite of the weather. Um, we're very lucky to have Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason here. Uh, Jeff, you've written about a dozen books, I think, um, including my favorite book about jazz, but beautiful. Um, and, of course, Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi. Um, and Richard, in addition to being an old friend, um, is uh, author of Us, Drowning People, The Lighted Room, and more recently, um, History of a Pleasure Seeker and uh, Who Killed Pete Burrell. Um, now, you guys will be speaking this weekend about your writing in a few different contexts. Um, but today on Brother, 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 we wanted to talk about music. Uh, so to get started, I'd love it, actually, if you guys would walk through your sort of personal musical evolution um, over the years. So, you know, how did you engage with music, playing or listening? Um, what were your main areas of interest? And, you know, how has it changed over time? Are you making, me, you're making the least hit member of the panel go first? That's very wise. Uh, and I should just fess up that in this crowd, I certainly feel the least hit. But, I, but music is very important to me. Um, how did it all start? I think, actually, my dad used to drive me to school, and he played Hooked on Classics. So, do you remember that? It was like the sort of medley of the greatest tunes yeah. from classical music. But because they were great tunes, they all stuck in my head to this day. Um, and I started to play the piano when I was uh, seven or so. And my, I really wanted to uh, until I started, and then after two weeks, I wanted to stop. And my mother did something quite clever. She was like, you can give up for your next birthday. 
So I'd wait and practice for the next sort of nine months to roll around, and then I'd have my birthday, and then she'd say, actually, you can't. You can give up your next birthday. <laughs> and for some reason, I kept on believing this uh, for three or four years until I started to enjoy it. And then I had a... The piano saved me in some sad moments in my life. My sister died when I was a child. And in that period, I think because everyone, when you're a kid and something, a tragedy happens in your family, everyone around you hugs you and expects you to cry. And tears are a bit like laughter. If they're expected of you, you can't do them. So I completely stopped being able to cry. And actually the switch between tears and laughter got switched which was awful, so this is a slight digression, but hideous moments in my adolescence. My best friend uh, told me his grandfather had died. I started to laugh. Worse than that, my best, one of my other best friend's dad told me his dog had died. And in an English audience, when someone's lost their dog and you start to laugh uncontrollably, it's a bit of a disaster. Um, but in these sad periods, I started to play the piano and I kind of found a way of a connection. I love the, the, the beauty of the fact that somebody has written these shapes on a page and they might be alive or dead. A whole bunch of other people from a different age, usually, certainly with pianos made before you know, the middle of the 20th century, without any electricity and only natural materials have made this instrument. Mm -hmm. And then you join the sort of sequence spread across time and space and make something beautiful come out of it. Um, and I've loved that and it, it, music has weaved into a lot of the books that I've written. Well, uh, actually, uh, sort of music is an international language. Uh, Jeff has said before that uh, slapstick is the only other international language, so uh, music and being kicked in the balls or falling in the mud are basically the two things that, that keep uh, us rolling internationally. But, um, Jeff, what was the... Uh, yeah. What was walk us through your evolution in music? Uh, sure thing. Yeah, uh, I come from a, a non-musical family, and... Um, but of course, I was born in 1958, so I pestered my parents to buy me a guitar, which they, they duly did. Um, I never was able to read music or anything like that, and so there were two obstacles to my learning the guitar. One, that my dad, having splashed out on the guitar, he was such a cheapskate, there was no way he was going to pay for musical lessons. So he bought me this book, you know, How to Play the Guitar which, of course, I couldn't do. And then there was another huge obstacle. It's an insurmountable obstacle. I'm left-handed. And as you know, nobody who's left-handed has ever successfully played the guitar. <laughs> nobody, not a single person. Oh, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. maybe. OK, yeah, I knew. Kurt Cobain. But anyway, so I yeah. had this book, which was incomprehensible to me anyway, and then I had to sort of reverse it all. So I gave up. Uh, the guitar after about um, uh, after about three weeks I think and I've never been able to play any kind of musical instrument and that has been one of the huge sort of lost not a source of regret because the my inability is is, is total but what I am conscious of I mean I'm I'm really happy sitting here with these with these three guys and here we are sort of talking <laughs> And I love it very much if I'm in a foreign country where I don't speak the language, but I manage to cruise a tennis partner and then, you know, we're able to, to play tennis. And it seems to me, I know absolutely that my, my idea of total bliss would be to find myself in some place like this. And then I could sit around with some of you and then we, if we could all play music, you know, we could sort of play music together. And... 
okay, it's fine to play music from uh, from the score. I think that's, you know, my wife does that and I can see how happy she is. But I think the real bliss for me would be just to, to get together with people I'd not known before and just to sort of jam together. And I've always loved being in a group. Conversationally, I love just sort of wisecracking and that kind of thing. But there's this whole realm of absolute bliss which has been denied me, which is that world of music making. And then I would say, finally, um, again, I got here at Port Elliot a few years ago. I did a gig with... Uh, um, oh, my God, what, what's his name? Um, God, he's my friend. I've forgotten his name. Um, Jimi Hendrix. Geez, yeah. Oh, God. Um, oh, Talvin Singh, yes. Mm. So, and I, I'd met Talvin in, um, in, in Varanasi in India, and I was really struck by this contrast between writing and music. Talvin would wake up every morning and what he most wanted to do every morning was start playing his tabla, was start playing music. And I think with many mus musicians, what they really want to do every day is play music. And it's so different to being a writer where you wake up and it's, oh no, <laughs> not surely I'll have some coffee, I'll read the paper, I'll play some music. And the whole day consists of this kind of trying to put off the moment when you've got to do that thing that defines your identity, writing, whereas musicians don't suffer that dread at all, I think. So, I mean, to, to sort of pivot a little bit away from this, one of the things that, you know, I was reading and rereading uh, your books over the last few weeks, um, you know, I noticed that, that mental illness and, and musical genius are sort of tightly linked. Um, in, in your case, History of a Pleasure Seeker, um, you know, you use Bach, actually, to, to sort of... Uh, punish a child. To, yeah, exactly, <laughs> to punish a child. Um, and, you know, of course, again, in, but beautiful, um, you know, so many of the, the, the characters um, and, and the musicians that you're writing about are, are sort of profoundly damaged. Um, and I'm sort of, I'm interested in, in, you know, if you would talk a little bit about that and sort of how you, you know, how you see those connections play out. You go. Okay, well, I think, yeah, uh, jazz for all sorts of quite readily explicable reasons uh, has a very high sort of casualty rate if if you like um, and I um, mean because uh, um, you know the I think partly because of the uncertain status of the people doing it on the one hand they're sort of you know most of them are are, are, are black so they've got that thing of being third-rate citizens uh, and on the other hand, um, you know, so there's that sort of routine discrimination they're suffering. And then there's the odd thing, though, to a significant part of the population, these third-rate citizens are great artists. And then I think a, a further sort of disruption occurs when they come to Europe, and there they're treated not just like great artists, but like gods. Um, and I think part of the thing of jazz, because of its um, thing where you don't have to remain absolutely faithful to the score, in some ways there's more scope for some sort of intuitive uh, playing of music. And also... Oh, I'm going to really arm wrestle with him about that, but never mind, finish. <laughs> um, oh, my God, now I'm too frightened to go on. Um, and um, so that there I think there's a... You can think of all sorts of examples of people who, were they not jazz musicians, would not have been good for much else. I mean, 
uh, Thelonious Monk, okay, very, very uh, uh, properly trained and schooled as a musician, but as a as a as a person, I mean, really, uh, you know, in many ways, you could say he's not, you know, not playing with a full deck. I mean, he's a really a, a, a really unusual person, let's say. So I think there was this something about the music that enabled people to, um, you know, to become something that they would not otherwise have been. But anyway, Richard, I just wanted to to kind of explore your point about um, it being, it seemed to me that you were implying that it's hard to be intuitive if you play from the score. I share your desire. I wish I could just sit down and jam with people. And actually, I'm writing uh, the musical of History of a Pleasure Seeker with an amazing guy who can do that called Chris Reed. And I have, I, I can just hum him a song in the, sh I mean, not he's not in the shower with me. I, the song <laughs> comes to me in the shower and I then WhatsApp voice note it to him. And the next day in the studio, it is a full on song. Or I can just hum something and he starts to play one of five different instruments. That is amazing. But I think that you can be very intuitive in the playing of somebody else's music that's written down. And, and to answer your original question, Christian, about um, Bach and... and how challenging he can be psychologically. Um, I wrote this book called History of a Pleasure Seeker, and in it, uh, Pete Barol uh, is 24, very handsome and intuitive, and he gets a job in Amsterdam in 1907 as the tutor to a very troubled 10-year-old boy who won't leave the house. And this kid has a sort of undiagnosed OCD, and it expresses itself in the habitual, relentless, compulsive practicing of one Bach prelude. And the, and the patterns of that and the black and white sequence of its notes. And I got that a bit from an experience that I had. I wish we could play it. It's the second prelude in, in C-flat, and it goes... It's the same four kind of... When you're playing it, you do that with your hands all the time in different um, moments on the keyboard. And in C minor, you would expect the last, flat, the last note to be an E-flat. But Bach in a really kind of vindictive way, <laughs> made the last note an E natural, which doesn't resolve. So as I was, I was learning to play it when I was writing Us, and I found that once I got to the end of it, because it doesn't resolve this complicated pattern, it really triggered my inner OCD and made me, it, you kind of want to play it again. And you, you play it again and again and again. And because it's the same hand movement, after you know an hour of this, it is literally physically painful. Um, so I'm, I'm more of a Chopin guy, actually. Uh, yeah, this, this begs the question, what did Bach ever do to you, I think? That this <laughs> well, he's inflicted hours of literally physical torture on me, as it yeah. happens. Although he also wrote some amazing music. But Eckbert is cured by Chopin, or, or to a certain uh, degree. Spoiler! <laughs> <laughs> some other things also happen in the book. Yeah. Richard right. will be signing his book in the <laughs> No, but I think that music can change things. I mean, one of the things Pete brings into this house, uh, I mean, he's very attractive and intuitive, and that just sets off a lot of complicated dynamics. But he brings a very different kind of music, a sort of soothing music. And in the end, it is the playing of, um, of a Chopin ballad that sort of helps experts see the beauty in music and that it doesn't have to be a hard taskmaster. Um, and we made a gorgeous digital edition of it, and you can hear that ballad. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was amazing. And I often think with your books, I kind of want to have a playlist so that I can hear what you're writing about. Because the point of one great artist is that it can never be wholly translated into another form. So you can describe Thelonious Monk, but it's not, it can never be the same thing as hearing yeah, him. Yeah. 
Well, let me, let, am I allowed to ask a, a question here? And this is, I mean, bear in mind, there is only one answer, to, there is only one correct answer to this question, Richard. <laughs> uh, and My pulse rate's you, going actually, through the ceiling. Who is the world's greatest living pianist? Is it Lang Lang? No. Oh. <laughs> I, I imagine he's left-handed. I have no idea who it is. There can only be one answer. Is, is it a jazz pianist? Well, Clearly a jazz pianist. Um, I was going to say Martha Algoy, but I know that's not going to be your right answer. I don't know. Who is it, Jeff? Well, uh, the answer, and the reason I asked that question is partly as a, a, a response to what Richard was, was saying. It can only be Keith Jarrett, can't it? Yes. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was one of those question time moments when there's meant to be a round of applause. <laughs> when you say something like, I think torture is terrible, and the audience... Yeah. Anyway. There's so, still time, everybody. Uh, yeah. And the reason I say that, and this is to be in dialogue with Richard, is uh, let's suppose that uh, Alfred Brendel had never lived. Well, that's terrible. Let's suppose that Richter had never lived. That's terrible. But still, we would have different recordings of Bach, Beethoven, and everyone. Um, and, you know, okay, there'd be a loss, but it would... Uh, and if, we'd, if all the great pianists of this century had not lived... Well, that would be unfortunate, but we would, we would still have the scores. If Jarrett had not lived, Jarrett, who, by the way, of course, uh, has recorded Bach properly with no improvisation at all, you know, he, he can do that stuff. Maybe not at quite at the level of, you know, of, of, of the specialist uh, 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 classical performers. But if Jarrett hadn't lived, we wouldn't have those original Jarrett uh, things, those purely improvised uh, um, uh, solo performances. Which I have never listened to, so clearly. This, I told you I was the least hit member of the panel, and I'm going to fess up and illustrate that. Well, boys, what about you and Jarrett? No, I mean, I think... No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the idea that you performing somebody else's work um, is uh, is just sort of a transferable skill, and you know, you add your own um, your own sort of specific elements to it. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it exists on paper, um, you know, in sort of concrete form. Whereas somebody like Jared, I guess, is is really improvising, and even his own performances of his own music may not be the same um, performance to performance. Oh, which, yeah, I mean, yeah, they would. It would be. It would be terrible if we discovered, actually, that Jarrett was, on, on, in the course of a tour, was just doing the same improvisations <laughs> night after night. Wouldn't he <laughs> No, I've seen the, uh, well, I've not seen Keith Jarrett, but I have seen people who do the same improvisations night after night and pretend that they're improvisations. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a rather frightening thing. But I, I did want to uh, come back to, you know, uh, with your book being very musical and, and uh, you know, Richard, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the app that you've developed that incorporates music in and in art into the into the reading of the book, or, or if you could tell us a little bit about Orson. Sure, I mean, I wrote this book, History of a Pleasure Seeker, and it's full of music, and, and Pete uh, grows up quite poor in a little Dutch town called Leiden, but his mother was a singing teacher, and she taught him how to play and to sing, and so he uses music to set atmospheres in a room that allow him to get his own way. And also sometimes by singing a famous piece of music that has a very precise relevance to one person listening, he uses it to communicate. And as I was saying earlier, you know, I can describe the impact of a Chopin nocturne, but it can never be the same thing as hearing it. And um, 
And so when I wrote the book, I thought the iPad had just come out, and I thought, wow, there can be a, a cool deluxe digital edition of this book where everyone could hear it. And I thought someone will be making cool book apps, but actually they weren't. And I think it's because techies are hugely creative, but not at all in the same way as storytellers. So they try to make these book game experiences, which are anathema to real readers, because, can I just chuck this out? What is, presumably some of you here read, why do you read? What is the key pleasure? Is there one correct Escapism. Answer? No, there are a few, but escapism is one. Any others? Imagination. So that's what I think. I think, you know, your experience of a book is never the same as yours. And what you definitely don't want to do is choose your own adventure in a novel. So people use this technology and they're like, okay, you could decide if the character turns left in Frankenstein, this happens. If he turns right, you've got Mary Shelley writing what really happens. If you turn left, you've got someone with a tutu from Bristol impersonating Mary Shelley. Sorry, shameless elitism, I'm talking about one particular app, some of them are really good. Uh, but the point is, in a great novel, you feel that I'm, I'm being taken care of. And I, I decide if I'm gonna read a book in the first couple of pages. Does this person, man or woman, do I feel confident that they know what they're doing? And if I do, and I have done in, in many of your books, Jeff, it's, there's no, no lovelier feeling. It's like I don't have to decide what's happening next, I can, and I can imagine it. So in Pleasure Seeker, I'll just give you an insight into one scene. Pete goes to this amazing house in Amsterdam on the Heerentracht Canal, and it's owned by the wealthiest hotelier in Europe. And the family to the outside seem incredibly glittering and charming, and they've hidden all their dark secrets. And um, he knows that to get a job as tutor to this troubled little boy, he has to show that he can play the piano. And something tells him that the woman who's interviewing him, who's called Jacobina, she's in her late 40s, uh, still very beautiful, something tells him that she hasn't had sex in 10 years. So he decides to drench her in E-flat major, which his mother told him was the only key for love. And he plays a Chopin nocturne in E-flat major. Um, and... When you're reading the Orson edition, you can hear it. So I, I don't know if it'll work, but I'll do my best. So he sits down at the piano, um, and he says, uh, Nina Barol's edition marked his piece, Espressivo Dolce, to be played sweetly and expressively. And Pete began to play it softly from memory, at a slow andante. He was correct. It was many years since anyone had touched Jacobina for Molensickets with the aim of giving her pleasure. She had almost ceased to mourn this sad fact, but in the presence of such a beautiful young man, it struck her forcefully. She stepped closer to see him better. Pete's face was manly but graceful, with succulent red lips that prompted thoughts of her husband's dry little kisses. Jacobina looked away goes on. Uh, <laughs> Another spoiler alert. It, it happens. But it's fun of music and singing. I actually, that is me playing because oh, he, uh, yeah, because he makes mistakes. He's not Lang Lang. Ah. Um, and so I got to record it and make mistakes. But the better music was done with amazing musicians, wonderful singers, and Spencer Meyer, who's a great, great uh, classical pianist. So it was sort of a way of bringing lots of people from dis different disciplines together. If you search Orson in the App Store, you can uh, buy it. Well, I, I O R S O N. It looks like that. Actually, I mean, I, I see a ton of potential in, in Orson for I mean for a variety of you know different types of music books. But I read a, a lot of sort of rock criticism, rock um, 
history. And, you know, I'm thinking about Legs McNeil's book, uh, Please Kill Me, or, you know, anything by Simon Reynolds. Um, you know, is this, uh, is this something that you see sort of moving into the, you know, the... Yeah, we've just done, actually, a beautiful awesome edition of, of a wonderful book called Song for My Fathers by Tom Sancton um, about being a white guy growing up in New Orleans learning jazz. And in the paper version, there's something that's unsatisfactory about it because you can't hear any of the music. But the Olsen version has 40 songs in it. You can hear people's voices. Uh, and it's, it's really amazing. And also, I hate kind of digital books that all look the same. The Olsons all look like themselves, uh, which is one of the joys of a paper book. Well, that, that's a we're doing Miles Davis, too, later in the year. Yeah, I just uh, read But Beautiful, uh, I'm afraid, 25 years later than I should have. <laughs> And um, I think it would be, I mean, I think that would translate so beautifully in this. Yeah, and I absolutely. did find myself juggling devices because I wanted to see pictures and I wanted to see, I wanted to hear music and I wanted to know what Bud Powell looked like. And, and if you do juggle devices, you kind of kill the imaginative experience because you're always coming out. And then if you, you have, have to, to kind of go story, on YouTube, yeah. you encounter three adverts. And yeah. it's just, it, I wanted to put everything in one place. I, I would love to hear, you know, what you, how you think But Beautiful would sort of yeah. translate. Also, I, 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 wanted, I had a question locked and loaded about uh, if you did But Beautiful now, um, which I understand you, you likely wouldn't, but would you have changed the cast of characters? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say, um, and again, to be in dialogue with Richard slightly, so, there was, so the But Beautiful came out in 1991. It's my book about jazz. And I came to jazz rather late. I really loved it and wrote the book um, really because it was so mysterious to me. And one of, the re one of the reasons it has the form it does is because when Richard just then was saying E-flat major, I don't know what that means. I've got no idea. Um, and so that meant that when I was trying to find out more about the music, the, many of the books were in this foreign language. And also, when I came to write the book, that language was not available to me. The language that was available was one of metaphors, really, to describe certain, you know, what the music was doing. And then those metaphors expanded themselves into scenes. So I would create scenes based on the kind of uh, apocryphal stories from musicians' lives, such, you know, jazz musicians had very eventful lives as all these sort of stories. And the idea is that I would improvise my versions of these stories, but those scenes would always serve as some kind of commentary on the music. So that was the, the language I did have access to. Can I, can I ask a question? Do you ever um, take... Are you ever inspired to make a scene by, say, the shape of a piece of music or oh, how it makes you feel? Oh, my God, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the entire yeah. book, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And in terms of, to go back to the other question, the technological part of that... You know, I think of, uh, that when that book came out, maybe the best thing we could have done would, would have been to have included a CD, something like that. But in Read the, it in a jazz club. Say again? Read it in a jazz club. That would be, that would be great. But when, it, when I was writing it, I was the beneficiary of a very recent technological innovation, which, I mean, there are some young people in the audience, so bear this in mind. There's know. one on the stage as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a time when you weren't able to walk around listening to music in your head. But when I was writing this book in the late 80s, the Walkman was quite a recent innovation. So you could have this thing, and I would, if I was writing about Thelonious Monk, I would make a mixed cassette tape of uh, Monk's music, 
play it when I was walking around Monk's neighborhood. And that very, very, that was such a new sensation of walking around with that music absolutely in your head. So that you'd get this kind of synesthesia whereby things you were seeing were manifesting themselves musically and and vice versa. So that really, really helped uh, like that. There's another, I mean, at the risk of going on, there's another reason, though, why I wouldn't write the book now, because back then, you know, I so wanted to learn more about these these incredible people, Uh, but there wasn't that much. There were a few books about jazz, whereas now, of course, you can go onto YouTube and you can hear the voices of these people. You know, there's loads more stuff available. So, for example, um, you know, uh, in the book... I don't... The book does not... The book ends with Chet Baker and Art Pepper. It doesn't end with Alba Isla, who I mm-hmm. think in some ways it should have ended with. And when I was living in Williamsburg, um, I used to take the East River Ferry with now not a Walkman, but the I, but an iPod, listening to Isla's music. And, you know, Alba Isla, were, his body was found floating in the East River. So there it was. I was trying to do the same thing 30 years later. And, or 25 years later, and I couldn't do it. Uh, And I think one of the reasons for that is because there's just so much stuff available to satisfy that desire that I had on the internet. So you can now go on the internet and you can read, you can hear Don Cherry's unbelievable account of his first meeting with Albert Isler. And right from the start, I mean, it's so like the kind of thing I did in my book, but it's just... It's amazing. It's just the, he starts by saying, I was playing in Copenhagen. I was with Sonny Rollins. So immediately, my God, you know, the, the cast list is incredible. He said, and then later on, we met up with Dexter Gordon. And then comes this amazing account of his actually meeting Albert Eiler. So the short bit of that is saying, actually, the desire that motivated me to write the book is now so easily satisfied by all that incredible amount of archive that we that we have on the internet. I mean, that, that actually dovetails really nicely with, you know, sort of the nature of our podcast because, um, you know, I, as a young person and a music fanatic, I was a, you know, import bin, you know, buying 12 inches and all this, and Christian's never really not had the internet. And it's, it really is a lot about what we talk about. Um, and, uh, you know, even uh, we watched a, a documentary not long ago about Jimmy Iovine and, and Dr. Dre called The Defiant Ones. It just came out on HBO. And you can actually see uh, the first time that Eminem goes into the studio with Dr. Dre and, and starts, you know, f- uh, sort of freestyling to... Uh, uh, and, the song he became My Name Is, yeah, which was his first single, so... Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's some of the mystery and some of the beauty is ruined and some of the imagination's taken away. And, and I wonder, too, uh, you know, with the advent of unlimited choice and unlimited access and everything, is there, you know, is there still a place in, in the world for music criticism and curatorial power or... I mean, I'd love to hear your, you know, opinions on that. Well, I was going to jump in, Jeff, when you said that you didn't need to write the book because so much information is available. I think that's every reason you needed to have written the book because with so much information, what we all need are curators that we trust, right? I don't have time to go and watch 10 million YouTube videos that are all available. <laughs> sure I, want, I want someone I trust to tell me the best. And then, sure, if I want to expand my explorations thereafter, um, I will, but... I, I think the way that technology... I'm writing a novel about it now, actually. I think the way technology 
has influenced and infiltrated our lives just in the last 10 years since everyone got a touchscreen device is really interesting. Guess how many times on average, this is not the outliers, this is the average, uh, people in the UK look at their smartphones each day. Chuck it out. 44 over here. Any others? 100? 220 times a day. And they give you this huge illusion of choice, not only in music, but I can communicate with anybody. You know, you can, like, with a geolocation dating app, you can send anybody a picture of any body part you want. You can see anybody. You can talk to any of your friends on Facebook. But I think, actually, that that has contributed to creating one of the loneliest generations who've ever lived. Because what happens is that people are in their houses, staring at these screens, mm -hmm. having emotional, erotic interactions, primarily, I'm seeing some nods in the audience, primarily some devices, and I think that's really sad. I don't know how we got there, but I, I do think, think that's exactly. like a new that, generation though, I mean, of jazz is, musicians. Then. This is a little bit, uh, yeah, this isn't specifically linked to music, but certainly, you know, one thing I noticed about Wyndham is, while I almost always text, I mean, that's my first instinct, um, you know, Wyndham calls his friends every week, um, which is just sort of, you know, it's sad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when I'm call, call your friends in England some more. Um, but no, I think, it, I mean, that, that's just a complete uh, uh, sort of, you know, paradigmatic shift that I think... Yeah. Um, but isn't that interesting? Now that we can call anyone almost for free, yeah. you kind of don't want to communicate. That's too intimate. You've well, got to send them a text. Oh, exactly. I mean, yeah, people, uh, sort of millennials talk about sort of the, the angst that you get when your phone rings and you sort of think, who on earth would this be? It's, you know, or you assume it's either going to be your parents or your yeah, grandparents. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, um, a, that's the thing, too, is, I mean, we talk about unlimited choice in music, and I found it sort of, par you know, paralyzing, but I also wonder if it's my age at this point. You know, I'm pushing, I'm closing in on 50, and, and am I, you know, is it because I just don't have the capacity any longer, or is it because... Uh, you know, I have unlimited. If you told me when I was 12 years old that I could listen to any song, any time, yeah, yeah. anywhere, I would have fucking loved it. Yeah. But you know, now it, it feels overwhelming, and I wonder if you all feel the same way about that. Oh yeah, I mean, I God, I mean, it's what a what a terrible fate to be the rep the oldest person on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've no, I've not really been able to make the transition to the you know to the Spotify way of listening. For me, discover my ability to discover music at this time when it's all available has, has, has been yeah. quite... I need to be going like that through mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, th through the bins, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's really... Uh, I, I find that a, hu uh, a, a huge problem. On the other hand, though, you know, isn't it that wonderful thing where, uh, you know, somebody tells me about this incredible, um, you know, performance by Iqbal Bano of... Um, of that Fayez uh, uh, poem that she she sang in in Pakistan um, um, called Hum de Kengi, and then you can you can hear this very very rare thing on YouTube, which really you would never have. I don't think that that was ever available in a record store. So it's you know it's as ever that that the, there are there are gains and losses. I guess the other thing that we're living through now is uh, you know this thing. It's it's a sort of it's between the sort of internet and the record thing, that the phenomenon now of the box set, you know, mm. the Miles Davis, the complete on-the-corner sessions, the complete in a silent way sessions. And, you know, as consumer objects, they're so seductive. I love the box, I love the booklet, and, you know, I buy them. And then I very rarely listen to more than two CDs worth because you realise that actually there was a re reason why they boiled down ten hours worth right. of recording to... Uh, but 
owning it is a source of the, the pleasure of owning it is, is not diminished at all. But I think you find in, in the reading of books a, a swing the opposite way. So with books, you can also get any title you want at any time you want, so long as you'll read it on a device. But what we're seeing is a huge resurgence in bookshops oh, yeah. because it's that thing. You want to look at a range of books. You want to choose how they smell and what the covers are like. And, and oh. you're seeing that a lot. There's a swing away from kind of vast choice in reading well, towards the resurgence, resurgence of vinyl bookshops. as well, I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. If, come it, back if you want a, uh, the pinnacle of preciousness, the uh, Whole Foods in Manhattan has a vinyl section. Uh, of course <laughs> it does. <laughs> Actually, there is a, another point about this as well. I find that being uh, a really well-informed, li- you know, I used to whenever you know you back, you know, when you'd get a CD or a, a record, while you were listening to it, it was very easy to sort of commit to memory who was playing, who was playing on it, who was playing bass, all this kind of stuff. Whereas now with stuff streaming, yeah, uh, that no kind idea. of information is very, very difficult. It's, it's, it's harder to come by. And because you don't have that visual thing of the gatefold... You know, and I, I, mean, I think back to the gatefold album sleeves of, of the prog rock records I grew up with. You know, I can really... I can tell you pretty much, you know, the entire track listings and who performed on every Van de Graaff Generator album ever recorded. I couldn't do that with music that I access in the, the current way. Yeah. Now, and so maybe um, I think I've got one more question, and then I'm not sure how we are on time. We'll, we'll take questions in, a, yeah. in about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've previously described the incompatibility of jazz and writing. Um, yeah. And I wonder, well, first of all, this reminds me of the, the sort of old rock critic adage that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, and, you know, I wonder... Is this something you can extrapolate, do you think, to, or expand to, to encompass all music? Or is there something specific about jazz? And Richard, I, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well, how you, how you experience writing about classical music. Well, I think there's a, a, the fundamental incompatibility with jazz and writing. It's this um, thing that, you know, jazz is improvised. That's not to say it's spontaneous, but, you know... Uh, uh, the idea, you know, Thelonious Monk would say, I think, to his musicians sometimes, right, we're going to record this one, so you better get it right, because, you know, it's going to be it's going to be preserved like that. And that thing of freshness is so important to jazz, because we certainly don't want to feel that we're just seeing somebody going through the motions every night. Okay, so, in writing, we've got Kerouac with his commitment to spontaneous prose, first thought, best thought... But actually, it's quite interesting now, as we study the various manuscripts of uh, On the Road, there's the myth that he just banged it out on that long scroll. But actually, we can see now that Kerouac kept revising On the Road in order to make it more spontaneous. And this is the thing about writing. Generally, it gets better the more you, you work it over. So there's that... But only up to a certain point. Yeah, and th- th- then... You, you can know, over-perfectify, for sure. Yeah, or, or certainly you can uh, you run into diminishing returns, but generally speaking, it's better. You know, you, it needs to be re- revised. That's that's why there's that fundamental incompatibility with uh, jazz and uh, and writing. I think. Shall I hand over to you on classical music? Then well, I'll it's say- more this question of improvisation because um, so I don't ever touch a computer any longer. Because compute, Microsoft Word, I think, is the enemy of good writing <laughs> uh-huh. because it permits you endless revisions. <laughs> yeah, yes. So what happens is you... In the, in the word I've coined from my own head is perfectifying. 
You know, if we're left alone with a word processor, you spend all day moving one paragraph around, polishing, 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 so you end up with these complex, rich, rhythmical, uh, sort of poetic sentences, which actually are not, not as good as the first time they came out. So I wrote History of a Pleasure Seeker by hand. I then did correct it. I mean, there's a, there's a revision process, but I find, because I'm such a perfectionist, I have to remind myself that as somebody, I can never remember who said this, it wasn't William Morris, but somebody did and they were smart. They said, there is hope in honest error, none in the icy perfections of the mere stylist. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the great novels in English, certainly before the advent of the word processor, lots of clumsy sentences in Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh. It's part of the richness and wonder of them. And so for, for who, who Killed Pete Barol, which is what happens to Pete in the end, but how he dies is, uh, is your guess. Yeah, the title's a spoiler, sorry. Um, but I wrote that on an electric typewriter, which I loved because you end up with actually a physical object that is the first way the page ever came. And I'd often the next day revise it by hand, and then I'd, I'd force myself to leave it for three weeks. And when I read it after three weeks, I found I got rid of 80% of the revisions. Because <laughs> you're often not the, uh, you're the best judge of your work as soon as you've made it. I keep wondering what Spellcheck does to perfectify. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. I force you to spell like an American for starters, which uh, honor definitely has a U, by the way. your own word processor, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, just on this thing of, I mean, let me just run this by you. I mean, t t tell me at what moment I start to sort of lose your sympathy or to sound... A, the, like this a crowd are English. They are never going to do that. Well, uh, <laughs> They're going to smile politely for it. Let's try it. Three sorry. hours, guys. Or uh, at what point uh, just, it just, I start to sound like just a bit of a plonker. So here we go. I like Beethoven. That's not a problem, is it? I like Beethoven's string quartet. Still okay? In A minor. Opus, whatever. The Adagio. And it's funny, by the time you get in quite advanced into that, that sentence, it seems to me you've sort of, some sort of hackle has started to rise. I so disagree. <laughs> I like the specificity of yes, it. Of I want to know which piece of Beethoven. People are like, I love... Beethoven, what does that mean? Yes, no, no, no. I mean, I, of course you've got to be specific, but isn't, that, isn't it unfortunate and somewhat alienating that as you descend further into that quite reasonable thing where I'm just trying to describe to you exactly which bit I like, there's just this sort of, oh, we've entered into this sort of, um, you know, uh, kind of rather um, this... Um, a thing where some sort of special entry requirement is you've entered into some sort of VIP area, as it were. Yeah. Uh, Fucking you, plonker. You, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for not calling out plonker very early on. But anyway, you, I think you, you I hope you, you take the, the point generally. There's an area of sort of super refinement. I'm just interesting yeah. that a man who's devoted his life to ideas and to their manipulation should be aggravated by erudition. <laughs> uh, I'm not, which you clearly are. Oh, I'm not. I'm not at all. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm not aggravated by it. I don't understand some of it, a, right. a flat minor or whatever. And I'm just conscious that, may, you know, of course, we would we all benefit from listening to this, the greatest music ever written. But I think part of its inherent uh, um, the the. You know, part of the way that it will always retain this uh, this uh, this inaccessible quality is because that is necessarily the way in which it's referred to. But isn't that true of any discipline? I mean, 
you can talk about rugby. There's a whole range of words that have specific meanings about rugby. If you don't know what they are, you can't follow the conversation. I mean, any discipline has its own lexis and vocabulary. Yes, but the vocabulary of uh, football, for example, is less arcane. I would say so. Oh, God, that is such a Are you referring to soccer? <laughs> I, did, I, did I don't to... even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> Offside, does anyone you know, immediately know where I did want to sneak in one, one quick question yeah. before... Uh, before we entirely take over your finish. podcast. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was the entire point of having you here, is to take over this podcast. Um, but I did want to ask, both of you sort of have concentrations in music that's, that's non-lyrical, and both of you are writers. I wonder if it's... Uh, cause or effect kind of thing. I mean, do you? Is this your? I know. I write about. I write about songs too. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I. I mean, I. I just find that. Um, well, I guess what I was saying is that because your writers do misplaced lyrics trip you up. I mean, do do the things you know where you they, you sort of take an injury. I, I know it happens to me. Um, you know where a certain song can be ruined by a turn of phrase. That yeah, is, for sure. And I, I was just curious what, and, and particularly with jazz, whether, you know, because I know there are, you know, there are plenty of sort of standards in jazz that, that, are, that are sung, but, you know, a lot of it is, is uh, instrumental. And so I wondered if that helped, uh, the, the absence of words helps you sort of uh, turn it into writing or not. Would you? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, in, in Pleasure Seeker, the songs that Pete sings have a meaning. So um, he actually gets caught out doing something very, very naughty while singing a piece of Tosca to a woman in a room who, uh, for whom it has a particular meaning. Um, Tosser, that's a great opera. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, trying to write the musical of it now, actually, I see that all the standards I've held song lyricists to for years are hard to live up to. Because I don't like the sort of forced rhyme where you get... The standard we're trying to hold ourselves to with the music is you should be able to speak it so it doesn't sound forced and words are in the right place in a sentence, but at the same time, you want those kind of Cole Porter firecracker mm. rhymes. And, you know, it's hard to do. So, as always, it's very easy to criticise on the outside. And once you try to do something yourself, your respect it, for people who do it well inevitably goes up. I have tried and failed. But uh, actually, I, I believe we're sort of coming to a close. So um, we're going to take questions. If anybody has questions, please, uh, you know, I guess raise your hand. So. Yeah. For those of you who didn't hear, she said she really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting that on the recording. You erudition, and I where the borderline was between erudition and Great question. Where's the borderline between erudition and pretentiousness? Just south totally of London. a question of intent, in my view, but yeah. Jeff, what do you think? No, no, Richard, you respond. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it, isn't that just it? It's intent. If my intention is to make you feel small and make you think that I'm cleverer than you, however I'm doing it, I'm a pretentious shit. Are we allowed to swear on your podcast? Um, but, but erudition itself, I'm very against this kind of slight English hatred of erudition. I mean, precision in language, saying precisely which bit of a Beethoven string quartet has moved you, to me is a wonderful thing. And I do think that Sometimes people who judge erudite people for being pretentious are actually having a war with themselves for not knowing enough. Um, yeah, well, can <laughs> controversial. <laughs> Half the audience boos, about a third of them clap. Well, we know where we are on that divide. 
Well, can I clarify? I am certainly not... And he is so erudite, by the way. I can't believe we're falling on opposite sides of this debate. Um, but no, but we're not. But my position has been misconstrued. I am certainly not uh, against erudition and specificity. It's just that when you... When, as you get... <laughs> um, when you when you get into this sort of uh, 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 it, th- those sort of the, the language of music has this autumn you you start feeling a bit pretentious even as you start uh, even as you start that process of uh, of defining what you've seen. But my God, I mean, so I really like, for example, reading Adorno on Beethoven. Because although there are bits in it which I don't understand, where he talks necessarily in musical terms, he will articulate for me the experience of the music that I'm that that, yeah. that, that I'm having. And that actually, just to finish, I think that's the whole point. People who are really good at their subjects don't have to seem really pretentious. This is a small diversion, but you just made me think of something. So there's this area of, of English studies called sociolinguistics. My feeling is that largely, and I'm sorry for any sociolinguists in the room, it was kind of created for people who couldn't be really good academics or function in the real world. So they write these very long books about very simple things like register. You know, I talk to my mum in a different way from the way I talk to the Queen. And a quotation, I had to do this for my Oxford finals and it's still come to me, colludes in the facilitation of the communication act, <laughs> namely listening. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and someone wrote a terrible book called English Word Formation that we were all obliged to read. It was unbelievably turgid, full of very simple ideas, very badly expressed. And in its own, it was the best piece of marginalia I ever encountered in my life. There was a copy in, in, the, in the library. And at the beginning, he'd said, to Winifred, under, under which someone had written, poor Winifred. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so good. The best thing I ever learned at university. <laughs> Another question? That was a great one. one Oh, well, um, because, oh, yeah, uh, because unless I'm mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong, unlike Jarrett, Taylor has never recorded uh, straight classical music the way, the, way that, the, the way that Jarrett has. So I wouldn't be elevating Jarrett just because he's, he's, uh, just because he's done the Jarrett stuff. The key thing is that he's also, uh, you know, uh, uh, performed uh, straight, straight music, as it were. Um, I, just going back to what Richard was saying about listening, yeah, I'm all. I mean, I really—that's the, the key thing, isn't it? So I'm, you know, I love Indian classical music, which uh, I've been really surprised by the way that when I've made CDs for people of Indian classical music, you know, which is really so, so strong rhythmically and melodically, some people say, "Oh, I just don't get it. I don't get this. I don't understand it. I don't get the structure." And it's strange to me. I mean, I feel that. Okay, to be absolutely honest, I mean, I, I, all you need is really a pair of ears to listen to it, and maybe actually, I mean, marijuana helps too, but that's not essential. Um, is that why you moved to LA, Jeff? Uh, no, but <laughs> not but easy I, to get hold of. But in terms of actually, I'm really struck by just following on from this thing of you know the problem with words like opus and so forth. With, I mean, I think Nigel Kennedy would, did a huge amount for making uh, classical music more available yeah, because he got sure. away from the whole sort of, uh, you know, poker up the arse kind of uh, aspect <laughs> of it. 
And then I gather in Colorado now, where marijuana has been uh, legalized, now, uh, and it's where the Takash Quartet ha have been based, they have these sort of concerts which are really a far cry from those uh, sort of scenes that used to be parodied by Morecambe and Wise, where they have these kind of incredible sort of gatherings like this here, and everyone's getting wildly stoned listening to incredibly great, serious music, not just tripping out on, I don't want to offend anyone, but on, you know, the Grateful Dead or something. Mm. No offence taken, please. <laughs> yeah. We uh, actually were being asked to, to wrap up, so yeah, sure. I, you know, I just wanted to thank uh, Richard and Jeff and also let you know that their books are available over in the bookshop and they will be available to sign them as well. And thanks to Wyndham and Christian and to you all. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.